Jesus is our living hope, amen? amen? He so is. Well, I seldom do this, but I'm preaching from the same text uh, that I preached from last fall. And the reason is that I know of no better text to uh, explain and celebrate uh, our second overarching value, which is heart change that leads to life change. And so as I thought of uh, the text to really introduce this value to you, uh, I just know of no better one. So we will go to Ezekiel. Years ago, for uh, those of you who know me uh, uh, know this, but years ago I had a dog, many years ago. His name was Hayden. He was a black lab. I got him when he was just a little puppy. And uh, so true to form for me, I uh, bought a book to teach me how to train my dog, right? Uh, and so I got a book, and uh, the book said, this is what to do. And whatever the book said, it's what I did, which involved 30 minutes a day, uh, every single day, training Hayden in a uh, certain command, one command a week. So week one, one command, week two, the next command, and, and thus and so on. So when he was old enough, six months old, we began the training. Hayden was a smart dog. He could pick up on things, and he really did. And so by the time I went through this training of all the different commands that uh, the book said he needed to know, no lie, I could walk with Hayden, no leash required. Hayden would walk beside me, and when I would stop, he'd stop, and he'd look up at me and wait. And then when I started, he would start, and I would walk until I stopped. And when I stopped, he'd stop and look up at me. When I said come, he came. When I said sit, he sat. When I said stay, he'd stay. He just did whatever it was I told him to do. Whatever it was. As a matter of fact, this is a little tormenting. But I could take a little piece of meat, put it on his nose, and he would sit there and salivate with that meat lying on the tip of his nose until I said one little word, and that was okay. And at the word okay, he popped that piece of meat up off his nope, nose, grab it in the air, and, and eat that. That was Hayden. But every single year, for whatever reason, he wandered away. Every year for two or three days, Hayden would leave home. He'd wander across the ridge. Maybe he had a girlfriend somewhere. I don't know. But he'd wander away across the ridge, and then he'd come home. He always came home. He'd be back. Do you know, I did a lot of training with him. Loved that dog. Only dog I've ever loved. Loved that dog. Did a lot of training with him. But at the end of the day, do you know what he still was? A dog. He was a dog. I, I, I did nothing to change his heart. I did nothing to make him not a dog. All I did was behavioral modification. That's it. I just changed his behavior. Uh, that's it. I did not take the dogness out of him. Now, I must say to you this morning that some of you have in your mind that that is God's agenda for you. He wants you to walk when he says walk, sit when he says sit, stay when he says stay, and you spend your life trying to obey every single thing that he says to do. Because in your mind, the Christian life is nothing more than behavioral modification. If you can do the right thing every single time, then God is going to look at you, smile on you, that kind of thing. But that is not why Jesus died on the cross. He did not die so that you could be behaviorally modified. 
Let me give you some indicators of behavioral change that may not be heart change. You attend worship because your parents make you, not because you want to. If that is you, your true heart will emerge in college. It'll come out then when they're not around. You are more concerned with what others think rather than what you know about yourself. Your true heart will emerge in private. You are driven to perform, to be perfect. You dot your I's, you cross your T's. You hope that God is proud of you today and especially when you die. Your heart emerges when you judge others for being less than what you think they should be. Just in the past couple weeks, we celebrated Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. And here is what he had to say on the matter of heart change. Listen. He says, now the other myth that gets around is the idea that legislation cannot really solve the problem and that it has no great role to play in this period of social change because you've got to change the heart and you can't change the heart through legislation. He says, you can't legislate morals. The job must be done through education and religion. He says, well, there's half-truth involved here. Certainly, if the problem is to be solved, then in the final sense, hearts must be changed. Religion, he adds, education must play a great role in changing the heart. I would say to you this morning, our goal for you at Grace is not behavioral modification. It is an internal change that leads to an external change life. So let's look at why God changes hearts, and then we'll look at how and what is the result. Why? Let me look, let me read for you Ezekiel 36. This is ahead of the passage that Colleen read, uh, verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, to Ezekiel, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. So Israel in Ezekiel is not in Israel anymore. They are in exile in Babylon, and Ezekiel is with them there. All right, so Ezekiel is not in Jerusalem. He is in Babylon with the people of God who have been exiled. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. God is pulling no punches here. He is saying their sin was a woman's period. I scattered them, uh, so I poured my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land and for the idols with which they had defiled it. Let's talk about that for a moment. So what happened is that the people of Israel went into the temple of God and went into that temple of God, and they began to worship a god named Tammuz. Tammuz was an agricultural god. Tammuz would die, it was thought, in the fall when the plants died. And if you wanted to have a good crop and a good harvest, then you would pray for the resurrection of Tammuz in the spring. The people are in the very temple of God praying to Tammuz to revive so that they can have a fruitful harvest. Not only are they worshiping Tammuz, they are in the very temple of God worshiping the sun. So they're worshiping the creation, not the creator, and they're worshiping a false god, 
when God decides to move in and take care of business. He does not mess around. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name, verse 20, in that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of the land. So what did God do? God raised up Nebuchadnezzar. And when God raised him up, how do we know God raised up Nebuchadnezzar? Because the Babylonian kingdom, the Neo-Babylonian kingdom, was so short-lived that it only could exist for the purposes of God. It made no sense for them to be so powerful and so able, but so finite. God raised them up and deposed them. He did both. So he raised up King Nebuchadnezzar, who came into Israel, into Jerusalem. And King Nebuchadnezzar, some of you know the story, came in and Zedekiah was king of Judah. He took Zedekiah, he took his boys, he lined them up. And then he executed them one after another while Zedekiah watched and gouged out Zedekiah's eyes. And then he took Zedekiah, he took the brightest and the best, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the brightest and the best out of Israel and took them over to Babylon. Imagine being in Babylon and seeing this king in chains, eyes gouged out, no longer able to see. And the people are looking in saying, these are the people of the Lord? These are the people of the Lord? These are the people of the Lord? It was an awful scene. It was a terrible sight. And so they enter into Babylon having totally embarrassed God. Therefore, verse 22, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it isn't for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. God is saying, it's not for your sake, but I have a name. I've got a name. And my name, which is holy, has now been profaned by your sin of, of idolatry in the temple. And I'm not acting for you. I'm acting for me. Right? We might find that hard to imagine. Is God an egotist? Why is he acting for his holy name? Years ago, I read uh, all of Truett Cathy's books. Truett Cathy, founder of Chick-fil-A, read all of his, uh, his books about his business. So fascinating the, the way the business originated and, 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 and uh, got started. And uh, so in one of the books, uh, Kathy says he went to one of their restaurants. And if you go to Chick-fil-A today and you want slaw, it's, it's green or white slaw. However you call it, that's what they have. Same at every restaurant. So he goes into this uh, uh, restaurant and he discovers that uh, somebody there who's really a good cook has decided to make red slaw. So there's a red vinegar-based slaw, there's a white mayonnaise-based slaw, and this person is so excited to share with Truett their invention of red slaw, and they're offering it for people who may want red slaw instead of green slaw or white slaw. And so Kathy says in his book, I went and I picked it up and I took uh, the canister of slaw and dumped it in the trash can. And the person looked at me, like, what are you doing? He said, I, I looked at the person and said, in all of our restaurants, everywhere, people expect one kind of slaw. They expect one kind of greeting. 
They expect one kind of service. They expect one kind of chicken sandwich. Everywhere, every place. All right, we'll test this out. When you go to McDonald's and you get your order, what do they say to you? Well, not much. <laughs> right? Proves my point. Depends on the McDonald's. But when you go to Chick-fil-A and you put in your order and you say thank you, what do they say to you? My pleasure. That's inherent in Chick-fil-A's name, isn't it? Now, this is what God is doing here. He is saying, inherent in my name is not a blind king. It, it is not worship in Tammuz. My name is not about a, 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 a ragtag group of people being dragged across the desert to live in exile for 70 years. This is not who I am. Verse 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. Well, I know what some of you are thinking. I do. You're thinking God must be this on this ego trip. Uh, what in the world is he thinking? Well, I, I think you might have room, right, to think that if we think kind of in the way that we think earthly. But in Exodus 34, God wanted to reveal to Moses his name. And here it is. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him. Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed here is his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. That is his name, my friends. That is his name. He is, he is slow to anger. He is abounding in loving kindness. He is merciful. He is gracious. He doesn't let people buy with sin. He, he, that's who he is. When he vindicates his name, that's his name. Here it is. Inherent in his name is love and justice, grace and truth, love and discipline. So what do the Babylonians think when they see people looking like this, smelling like this, acting like this, feeling like this? They say, these are the people of the Lord? These are God's people? I would ask you, we're about to get real, so strap in. What do your Facebook followers think when they know you more by the parties you attend, the beer in your hand, than the love in your heart? What do your coworkers think when they watch you berate your staff, belittle your boss, and bemoan your job? She is a person of the Lord. He is a person of the Lord. What do your teammates on all your teams think when you tell the same jokes they tell, make fun of the same people they make fun of? He is a person of the Lord. She is a follower of Jesus. What do your children think when you leave your wife for another woman, your husband for another man? These are the people of the Lord? What do your followers on Instagram and Facebook think when you post almost naked pictures of yourself and your body in skimpy bathing suits as if posing for a men's magazine? She 
is a woman of the Lord? If you are a disciple of Jesus, you are God's billboard to a lost and dying world. God has no plan B. He has no plan B. There's, there's no other mechanism. He has decided not to reach the world through anyone but you. Wow. God will not discard you, but he will discipline you. He will not disown you, but he will correct you. He will not destroy you, but he will call you out. That's why he changes hearts. How about how he does it? It isn't what God doesn't do that is more, it is, it's what God doesn't do that is more surprising than what he does. God doesn't give up on you. This is clear. He does not give up on you. The next few verses are filled with I will statements, seven to be exact. Seven I will statements. Look at them. Number one, I will bring you back. From where? From Babylon back to your home place. I will bring you back. Number two, I will clean you up. I will sprinkle you with water. I will clean you up. I will bring you back. I will clean you up from what? Your idols, from your addictions, from your hurts and your habits and your hang-ups. God is a cleaning up kind of God. Amen? He is able to clean us up from those things with which we are dirtied. Number three, I will give you a new heart. I will take this petrified heart of stone out of you and replace it with a heart of flesh, a soft and tender heart. This week I went early Wednesday morning about 6.30 to be with Harold uh, Wilson and his wife Linda. Harold, I would imagine, is in his mid-late 60s, something like that. A very successful businessman here in town. Some of you know him. And Harold did not come to Christ till about three years ago. And uh, he is as country as the day is long. He does not call me Jerry. He calls me Jury. And so I go in and Harold's lying there. He's been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And he's about to have surgery He's lying there, Linda sitting to his left. And he said, Jerry, if anybody had told me five years ago that on the way to the hospital, I'd look at Linda. Linda, who attended church 37 years without him. If anybody told me that on the way to the hospital this morning, I'd look over at Linda and say, you know, we ought to pray. He said, I'd have laughed at him. And then tears came down his eyes. He said, but we prayed. And he said, Jerry, I've been doing some thinking. And I figured it out that if Jesus would die for me on the cross, well, this cancer ain't nothing for him. And we say to that, amen. Linda cried. Harold cried. Why? God took an old petrified heart of stone and took it and put it in that old, aged, hardened 
man a heart of flesh. This morning on the way into this service, there sits Ishmael, Krasan, his wife, Shine. Same story. Businessman. He said to me on the way in, how glad they've been sick he was to be here. Ten years ago, would be nowhere the story, would it, Ish? No. But here you sit. It's the way God works, isn't it? Could I say to you this morning, there is no heart too hard for him. There is no life too difficult for him to change. It matters not where you've gone or what you've done or uh, where you've been or where you are sitting here right now at this moment. You may be uh, replaying through the sin of your life and you are so ashamed and you hate what it is that you have done and you're so frustrated with yourself for where you've gone and what you've done and the bad influence that you have had. But I'm here to say to you this morning that there is a God in heaven who has never met a case too hard, who has never met a sinner he could not save. He's never never met someone he could not change. He has never met a person and thought, no, they're too hard for me. No, they're out of my reach. No, they are beyond me. Our God is able to save to the uttermost. And I love the old preacher who said, he's able to save to the guttermost too. Amen? He is able, and your case is not too hard for him. Your situation is not too hard for him. You are not too old. You are not too smart. You are not too dumb. You are not too too young. You are not too experienced. You are not too inexperienced. God can and will save you. He says, I will put my spirit within you, number four. I love this. We'll deal with it in a moment. I will cause you, I will cause you. To walk in my ways. Number five, I will renew my covenant with you. You will be my people. I will be your God. Number six, wow, we need this, don't we? I will save you from yourself. We all have these hangups, don't we? Oh, dear God, keep them far from us. Save us from ourselves. Number seven, I will meet your needs. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. Why does he say he'll do that? For his name. You see, Harold Wilson becomes a walking billboard for Jesus, doesn't he? Ishmael becomes a walking billboard for Jesus. So do you. So do I. What word best describes God's attitude and actions toward those who are his? Commitment. He's got you. He's got you. How does he keep it? He comes, and deli- comes to live in your heart through the Holy Spirit. Your heart becomes Christ's home. Your heart becomes his home. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Yesterday, I was watching Duke and St. John's, and I'm a Duke fan, and, well, what a good year to be a Duke fan, right? Zion Williamson, that's all you got to say. The dude's a beast. And so he's just beast-moding it and, you know, flying in the air. He, the, Dick Vitale, who, right, talks way too much, but <clears throat> Vitale is saying that he has to measure his jump, otherwise he will hit his head on the rim. 
And so, big, big guy, so agile. At one point, they went over to interview his mother. And so she was talking to them. They asked her four or five questions. And from the questions they asked her, it became quite clear how he's ended up to be who he is. They said, when did you notice that you had some talent on your hands? When he was five, she said. It was quite clear that he was going to be athletic. We didn't know what sport, she said. At that point, we just knew he would be. They asked a, a question about his athletic ability, and then they referred to her own career. She played two sports at a high level in college. She's quite tall. So there's some DNA going on, isn't there? Right? He got that from his mama. They said uh, he had gone for a loose ball on the floor, and, and, and Duke was up by 20-something at that point. And they said, why to her, why did he do that? She said, we taught him early on that his personal performance must always be servant to his team's performance. Always. He's not going for a, a record every game. He's going for a win, she said. Thought, wow, you could coach, right? It's good stuff. So this is why he's so selfless and has this humility. Comes right from his mom. There's some DNA involved, right? He's got like this little voice inside that he's heard all his life. He's got the DNA of his mom. When you come to God by faith in Christ, you get a, a new resident who moves in, and he begins to speak to you. He is the Holy Spirit. He will speak. He will talk. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Uh, third, what happens when God changes your heart? Look at this. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Scripture says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, and when God kindly leads you to repentance, you'll weep over your sin. You'll be like, oh, God, I can't believe I. It's just what you do. You need a gracious memory of the sin from which God saved you. You need a gracious memory of it. Uh, again, verse 32, It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. I would say if your sin never makes you ashamed, if your drunkenness never embarrasses you, your nakedness never shames you, your gossip never grieves you, you've never known the grace of God. It is His grace that causes that to grieve you. Those who don't think they need rescuing will never grab for the lifeline. But if you do, God says, I will cause your cities to be inhabited and rebuilt. The desolate land shall be filled and exiles will come back to Eden. Wow. Then rather than saying, these are the people of the Lord, do you know what they're going to say? Wow, these are the people of the Lord. Same words, different meaning. In other words, people will see Jesus. They'll see Jesus in your life. And then the wording here is amazing. The wording of verse 37 is so fascinating. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them. There are times when God won't let you pray that much. 
until the prayer you're praying has something to do with the mess you're in. That's what this is. If you want to pray and still be in the mess you're in, eh, not sure that's going to get very far. But if you want to pray and get out of the mess you're in, I think there's a God waiting to hear you. That's the point. God will not multiply your mess. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So I have visually seen what Ezekiel is describing here. Ezekiel was the son of a priest, so he would have followed his daddy around during those feast times. In Senegal, Africa, 95% Muslim, and been there several times, they have an annual sacrifice, an annual feast in Islam where they sacrifice a lamb. And when we travel from the main city out into the bush, we have to travel through the city where people come to buy the lambs, sheep. And when you travel through that city, everywhere, it's not really a city, but when you travel through that place, everywhere you look, you see lambs. They have been brought in, and they're everywhere. It's just pen after pen after pen after pen, as far as you can see. And people are coming in, and they'll pick one out to take home and sacrifice. So did the Israelites. When it was Passover, you go into Jerusalem, and you can't stir them with a stick. There's sheep everywhere, and there's sellers of sheep everywhere. And people who don't have their own sheep are buying sheep so that they can go and sacrifice them. And this is the picture Ezekiel says. God is going to bring you back from Babylon. He's going to put you back in Jerusalem. And when he does, you're going to multiply. There are going to be so many of you, it's going to be like those sheep that are everywhere when it comes sacrifice time. That's the picture. In other words, I would just put it in these words, God will do more than you can imagine. He will do more than you could ever imagine. We're going to end with a song this morning. And as we do, I want to give you an opportunity to come and to give your life to Christ. Why? Because it would be, it would be so sad if you heard the gospel that there was a God who gave his son Christ so that all your sins could be forgiven, that he made a new covenant, not the one Ezekiel's referring to, but a new covenant through the blood of his son, that you might be forgiven, born again, free from the sin that has trapped you. It'd be so sad if you left here like you came. So this morning... I would say, I would encourage you, if God is beating on the door of your heart, don't, don't, don't ignore that. Say yes. Come to him today. I'll be here. James will be here. We'd love to pray with you. We have others sitting around, life group leaders. We'd love to pray with you. Do not delay. Give your life to him today. Let's stand. Let's sing. You respond as God leads you this morning.